Dispatches from Afghanistan, returning to the dungeon's lair. Why I made the decision to go back to my work in Afghanistan. You war reporters, one military contractor told me over dinner in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, a few nights ago, you are a different breed. Certainly, there is something deeply twisted about trying to get back into a place where everybody who lives there is attempting desperately to flee with little in the way of security resources. My photographer Jake and I sat restlessly for days inside the comforts of Afghanistan's neighbors, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, after being successfully escorted by the Taliban in the northern city of Mazar-i Sharif after it suddenly fell to Taliban control just hours before the capital of Kabul crumbled. Choosing to return to the new or old Afghanistan, depending on which way you look at it, was not a decision that either of us made lightly. We are well aware of the risks. There are no embassies to turn to and few resources to assist us if things fall apart. Most of our friends and colleagues have flown far away from Afghanistan to far-flung places in fear of the new regime and the uncertainty that permeates every inch of the blood-stained nation. It is guilt, it is a concern, it is curiosity, it is a sense of needing to fulfill that gnawing sensibility in the pit of our stomachs that just because the US leaves a place does not mean that a place is erased from the map. Afghanistan chugs on, and we do what we do as journalists because abandonment amid this trying new chapter is not an option. The Afghan people still matter, their voices still exist, their stories still need to be told, and bearing witness is why we chose this profession in the first place. It is hard to explain to those who love you most in the world, who want to see you safe and sound and sleep every night with ease. But for me, I cannot go happily about my life, knowing I'm not doing what I intended to do. Certainly, there is no end point. The tales of tribulation will extend on and on. Yet I have the luxury of setting a self-imposed deadline at some point, of eventually forcing myself to walk away. In many ways, the story of Afghanistan is only starting. It is of those left behind to pick up the pieces of their shattered and precarious existences. The beginning is not only of a new chapter, but a new epoch. I do not think it is the job of a journalist to change the world. We are not policymakers, nor people pivoting inside powerful places. I do not carry that type of weight or hubris. But I do think there is a moral obligation to tell human stories as they are from the ground, to paint some kind of picture that cannot be conveyed from a 30-second video on social media or from analysing reports miles away. After trekking on foot over Friendship Bridge, the road and railway passage that connects the two very different worlds of Uzbekistan and Afghanistan, we reached the faded border town of Heratan. A Taliban officer asked no questions as he skimmed over our passports and valid media visas issued under the former government, stamping Jake and me in with the newly minted Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, Indonesian and Pashto. With our driver and two of his brothers waiting, we ventured across the wounded yet wonderful Afghanistan, some 300 miles alongside the Hindu Kush mountain range and ruptured Salang Pass. We skirted through entirely empty and bombed out villages with white and black Taliban flags flapping high and pivoted around shattered roads where entire chunks of the earth had been violently ripped out in heavy aerial bombardment. We passed mosques blown to bits and burqa-clad women and children languishing under the scorching sunshine, sitting silently in the dust, waiting for some form of an absolution that might never come. The expedition is rife with magical moments too, lush almond trees and small children squealing with happiness in tiny ponds, farmers offering cups of fresh green tea and homes encompassed by tendrils of mist on the mountain, capturing a real-life vision of the books I read as a child. 
However black a cow is, the milk is always white, my local host says as we drive on, emphasizing that this is a proverb that they often repeat in Pashto, meaning that there is so much more that unites us than divides us as humans. More than 12 hours later and in the dead of night, we reached Kabul, a city that exists in a way that is a shell of its former self. The irony is that it was a journey across the country that I could not make previously, given the erratic control the Taliban had over the beleaguered land, rendering it far too dangerous. All in all, we passed through about 16 checkpoints. Most waved us through, averting their gaze when they spotted me, a woman, wedged inside the small car. A few Taliban stopped and asked questions, mostly where we were coming from and where we were going, and then welcoming guests inside their country. It was only when we reached Jebel Siraj in Pawan, at the stop adjacent to the turnoff to Panjia, the picturesque resistance province, and the final bastion that the Taliban does not control, that our car was pulled to the side, and a commander called for further questioning. Eventually, we were signaled to keep journeying through to our final destination in the once bustling capital of Kabul. I rose early Sunday morning, the beginning of the working week, the sights drawing up remnants of old Afghanistan, fruit stands opening on street corners, men huddling in small groups peering over a video on a smartphone, and women emerging without male chaperones from their homes, around half without a burqa. Only the streets are a muted shadow of their former selves. The vibrancy and laughter have given way to a sense of laying low and constant anxiety. Have you had any problems? Aren't you afraid? One fruit whis one whispers one watermelon seller, his hazel brown eyes wide with worry. The Taliban patrol the streets, always armed to the teeth, on foot and in armoured trucks and police vehicles, easy to spot with their more coloured clothes and aggressive walk. As I write away, nestled in my Kabul home, I am reminded in that afternoon that Afghanistan is filled with lovely gentle souls as visitors come to plead their cases, hoping anyone from the outside world could fly them far, far away. Those who dress in tailored suits and speak in soft, poetic voices and read literacy grades and want nothing to do with bombs and bullets and bad behaviour. It is those who believed in freedom for their people and fought not with guns but with pens and books and education that are now in fear for their lives. Kabul has become jail for me, one young professor whispers, his face ashen with an agony that is hard to fully comprehend. It is painful to sit with people whose lives have been erupted of no fault of their own. They come to us with thick files filled with fear, letters explaining their plight, evidence of their university degrees and their activist work. It is so painful to watch these kind, polite people break down, fearing for everything, fearing for their lives, their families and their futures. There is no guarantee of life for us, one well-dressed young journalist tells me, his eyes wet with tears. I can't feel safe myself, and I may be threatened in the coming days. I need somewhere to go that is safe. I'm asking you for help in humanitarian grounds. These are the times I wish I was more than a mere journalist. These are the times I wish I did have power. It is going to be okay, I respond, silently wishing that I was not telling a lie.